Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. The following podcast contains some adult language as well as spoilers for the movie Don't Look Up. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm David Sims. I'm not, in fact, David Sims. <laughs> I wish I were David. Are you? Would I would oh, be please. so eloquent, so well. Oh shush! So hirsute, so stylish. Uh-huh. I'm a little hirsute. <laughs> Use hirsute. I am, eh, in fact, kind of. Sophie Gilbert, a staff writer at the Atlantic, and I'm joined today by spoiler David Sims. Hi, Sophie. Hi, David, and Spencer Cornhaber. Hello. Both staff writers on our culture team. How are you both? How is 2022? Cold. Yes. Uh, quite chilly today. Yes. You know, I'm 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 tense and anxious. How are you? <laughs> my permanent mood board, basically. Mm-hmm. Tense and anxious. But I'm very happy to be here with you both because I believe we have never podded all three of us together before. Is that true? Okay. I, I guess it's true. Yeah. The and I feel like we're the meanest and the nastiest of the pod crew. So all together, <laughs> this should be. I was going to say, consider how much we bitch and gossip on Slack together. <laughs> we do. The first time we are united in pod form. <laughs> Today, we are here to talk about Don't Look Up, the disaster satire from Adam McKay that came out on Netflix last month. Um, a bit of plot by way of recap. If you haven't seen it, we'll just want to refresh The premise is dramatic but straightforward. Two astronomers played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence discover a comet will hit Earth in six months. They attempt to warn people. They appeal to the White House. They go to the media. Lastly, they appeal to the business people who are hoping to profit from the big ball of minerals headed our way. But people aren't eager to hear their message and the planet killing comet becomes another culture war football. As it nears Earth, DiCaprio and Lawrence's characters implore people on social media to just look up while Meryl Streep's president, Janie Orlean, tells her followers to not look up or don't look up as she has her message goes. It's not the subtlest of metaphors, but then again, it's not supposed to be. The movie's director, Adam McKay, said he was inspired to write the movie by his burgeoning terror about the climate crisis and then the pandemic happened. And a comedy about even the most obvious of threats failing to stir collective action became suddenly newly relevant. Uh, so today we're, we're here to break down the movie, but also talk about the state of satire and the question of whether our culture has become too depressing, too absurd, too... <laughs> too lamentable to satirize so let's talk about the movie um the sort of festival of how it played out has almost become a parody of discourse itself there were reviews there were counter reviews there were takes there were defenses there was (laughs) there's been a lot of debate about this movie So, so david tell me first how did you feel when you first saw it how did you react to it uh, I saw this film fairly early, a few months before it came out, because I interviewed Adam McKay, and so I, you know, went to a long lead screening, as they call it. And, but um, I emerged, I remember, in a real bummer mood. 
the movie really kind of rattled me and annoyed or not annoyed but like you know it, i was not like as you might imagine you'd exit after seeing a new comedy from adam mckay like sort of walking out like <laughs> oh that was a good time you know I, I walked out just kind of with like a thundercloud over my head and i remember were you in a glass cage being, of emotion yeah sure i was uh, milk was a bad choice yes uh, no I, I i i remember i was just kind of like Ugh. um and it, it's not even entirely well obviously the film we're spoiling the film obviously uh you know, the film to, ends yeah. on a down note in many ways uh but I kept having this experience watching it where some twist or turn would play out in the film and I would have the knee jerk thing of like, this is a bit much or, you know, th- this is sort of a twist too far for me. This is tough for me to accept even in a satire. And then like another side of my brain would be like, I don't know, like take a look around like COVID, you know, like, you know, would sort of just mm-hmm. like nudge me with some sort of real world example that would kind of just make both sides of my brain go <sighs> um anyway so yeah so I, I had a complicated reaction to it when i saw it and uh then i was sort of amazed by the way the discourse played out on its release where sort of an initial wave of mixed reviews and then this kind of anti-critical backlash of like well why are you you know criticizing a movie that's trying to send a message and the whole thing like all online discourses became kind of uh, exhausting which is partly what the movie's about <laughs> It's true. I actually thought your interview with Adam McKay was really interesting when he said that the first two thirds of the film was supposed to be entertaining and then the final third was supposed to be sort of like, oh, hammer on the message. Because my experience of it was really the opposite. Like the first two thirds, I was just in panic. Like everyone's making bad decisions. (laughs) Freak out. And then by the final third, I was just kind of like nihilist acceptance. Like, oh, you know, it's kind of nice sentimental dinner party at the end. (laughs) I do. Yes, I would agree with that completely, actually. Yeah. Spencer, I was going to ask, did you read any of the reviews takes counter takes, counter counter takes? Yeah, I, I didn't, re- I don't know if I sat down and read too much about it, but sort of ambiently absorbed the fact that this was becoming a discourse cyclone and that in general, something weird was happening where film critics were hating this movie, but like liberal commentators were blasting film critics. And that's sort of like a flip of a dynamic that we've seen play out with really big blockbuster movies about superheroes and the Joker and other sort of frivolous subjects, but not about climate change, which is the subjects of this movie. So I was ready for it to be like an interesting, bad movie. But I think it's kind of like a good movie. It's kind of an extraordinary movie. I don't think it's my favorite movie, but it is accomplishing something that I've never quite seen done before. And well, it made me laugh. It actually made me cry, which shocked me. <gasps> um, and it gave me things to think about. And what else do wow. you want with the movies? And we can get into how that works. But I, I just generally was like, yeah, edge of my seat, interested, amused, annoyed, for sure, at certain parts. And um, ended up kind of like watching this on the couch with my boyfriend. And we were trying to not look at each other because I think we were both embarrassed to be having an emotional reaction to the end of this movie. Um, I didn't cry. I, I, felt, I left persuaded more than ever that there is never going to be anything that manages to sway the public to save the world in any meaningful <laughs> sense. Like, it's just not possible. Oh, we're mom. too stupid. We're too concerned with our own lives. Like, it, it just, I think it really makes the case that we have evolved past the point of collective action. So in that sense, real bummer of a movie. <laughs> 
But I did I did want to ask you, David, like, why do you think so many of the critics were so turned off by it? Because it really got some pretty scathing reviews from film writers. I'm going to try and sum up what I feel like were the sort of overall objections uh, I gauged from my community. Yes, please. Critics. Um, one, the film is 138 minutes long. It is undeniably super bloated. Uh, <laughs> I think it absolutely could have used slightly more focus, I would say, rather than sort of like being like, let's tackle TV media, social media, you know, uh, broken political system. You know, like it's just sort of trying to do everything at once. And it's like, if I'm watching a satirical comedy, I maybe want it to be like a hundred minutes long. Not It also tackles skater teens. Don't forget that. It it brings in a lot of ideas. Um, Anyway, you know, so like, so that's certainly uh, a a, a problem. Um, A thing that I think I struggled with watching it and struggled with in retrospect, and the thing that people have written about is like, I'm not sure. I understand why uh, McKay picked this metaphor of a of a asteroid coming to earth partly because it's a familiar hollywood tale there's lots of you know there's armageddon there's deep you know there are movies that you can satirize and have the audience know like yeah we know how this usually goes the president gets people together there's astronaut right you know like we know this tropes of a meteor coming to earth story i don't know if the metaphor ever cleanly tracked for me in a movie that's obviously trying to be highly metaphorical because climate change is hard to see and hard to you know point to and hard to like distill into something that people can focus on as something to tackle whereas the meteor is literally opposite of that we're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed okay okay um, well it's um you know just something we do around here you know we just keep the bad news light i think the interesting thing with this movie is everyone's kind of assessing it on different grounds. Like there are the people who are assessing it as a film. And then there are the people who are like, how dare you assess this as a work of film? It's a primal scream about the state of, you know, our inaction in this face of the threat that is dooming us all. Um, and and I, so I think one of the things that it speaks to is like, there just isn't that much film and television and popular culture about the climate crisis. I think in fiction, there's more in literature. There's a genre called cli-fi, which is sort of like post-apocalyptic. <laughs> climate that's fiction. pretty recent yeah, yeah. But, i mean but it's certainly happening yeah in i in mean literature. the only other example i can really think of in film is mother darren mm-hmm. aronofsky's movie also with jennifer lawrence that was just wacky as hell and also extremely divisive there's lots of films that have backgrounded some sort of climate apocalypse like snowpiercer day after tomorrow there was yeah. this awful movie last year called reminiscence uh starring hugh jackman that was set in like a flooded earth but like it's usually sort of like you know it's post-apocalypse and it's just kind of like yep well that happened and now earth looks cool and different in some weird way like water world whatever you know any any kind of yeah but it's not like mid-apocalyptic primal scream which i think mother in some ways felt a little bit like if you were reading it on that level so because there just isn't that much of this kind of movie i think the expectations placed on it and certainly like the different readings placed on it were higher than any one thing can bear (laughs) i mean it's supposed to be a movie that saves the world according to the discourse and i don't (laughs) i think that's absolutely not an okay expectation to have for any work of fiction but but to be fair i think the way that mckay has talked about this movie kind of makes it seem like he did want to save the world with this movie did you get that sense talking to him david uh i get the sense that adam mckay thinks that Things are very dire and the climate emergency is going to accelerate faster than even predicted. And so certainly he's, you know, on the battlements trying to sound an alarm. But 
I mean, he is obviously an entertainer. Uh, he, that is his stock and trade. So, like, you know, he's not making an inconvenient truth. He's not making a movie where he's just standing in front of a PowerPoint, like, trying to tell you the, the details of this. I've, you well, know. That kind of is what the big short was. Well, th- look, his last sort of out and out comedy, his last movie he made with Will Ferrell, the other guys, ended with these credits that rolled over, like, a sort of, yeah, like PowerPointy series of graphs about the financial crisis right and everyone was sort of like what you know like because that like the you know pension fund machinations were sort of a background story in that movie and people i remember walked out of that movie being like that was funny what was with the end there and like you know since then yes mckay has shifted to a more polemical style of filmmaking that is is uh you know grappling with real world stuff and you know he made the big short he made vice uh now he's made this succession obviously is he directed the pilot of that so yes i mean he's certainly i remember when i interviewed bong joon ho a few years ago bong said that like mckay is one of his favorite american filmmakers but you know bong also makes these movies that are like you know straight at the camera current event sort of satire like that that's the kind of stuff that I called it agitprop in my review. I mean, you know, like, right? Like, that is, that's kind of what he's doing right now. And I guess the question, and the, the thing we talked about is that how do you balance that with entertainment, right? Like, how do you get well, your big message across while also keeping the audience hooked, you know, and he's got movie stars and he's got twists and turns and special effects, you know, like, you know, try, try to you know, throw all that together in a blender. But it's also kind of like, how do you balance advocacy and satire? Because satire, I think, exposes and advocacy provokes. And this film works as very brutal satire in the sense that it really does. Or certainly made me feel that the world is too fucked to save itself. You know, and everything, including all the forces of business and Silicon Valley and media and entertainment, sort of distracting people from the fundamental crisis at the heart of the movie. But... But I think the movie kind of dooms itself on that front, too, because it's asking you to pay attention, but it's telling you that it won't matter. Right. What you're saying is like, how do you also balance advocacy and nihilism? Because there is a certain level of nihilism that comes with talking about uh, the climate crisis that is hard to avoid. And obviously, I think McKay knows that he obviously he's making an asteroid movie. These movies usually end with some sort of triumph. And he knows, like, it would be ridiculous for him to end the movie on a high note because that would sort of undercut his message of, like, we can, you know, if we all just get together. Like, that's not what this movie's about. So he has to end it on the bummer note. And that's a tough thing to ask of a, you know, star-studded mainstream comedy that's premiering on Netflix at Christmas time, right? Like, it's a, it's a big thing. With Meryl Streep with a tramp stamp. <laughs> You cannot go around saying to people that there's a hundred percent chance that they're going to die. You know, it's just nuts. David, I wanted to ask you about tone um, mm. because it's just such a tricky tone to nail. Do you think there's a version of this that someone else could have done a different director, or a version of this that was like slightly differently balanced that could have worked better? Yeah, I mean, you could make the more straight ahead, you know blockbuster movie i suppose like that is just tinged with metaphor you know so it's 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 more of like a michael bay movie about blowing up an asteroid but there's just this sort of like oh if you look past this a little bit like this is actually sort of a movie about the failure of american institutions which actually a lot of michael bay movies are about in my opinion but that's another discussion but uh 
I think the thing that this flirts with being but does not completely commit to being is more like a Dr. Strangelove type movie that is pure anarchic satire, right? Like mm-hmm. that is, yes, set in the real world, but like every character is cartoonish and there's much more nihil. There's like no sense of humanity whatsoever. Like what, what Don't Look Up is trying to retain is this core of humanity, especially in the Leo and Jennifer Lawrence's characters. And I mean, like when I interviewed McKay, he said DiCaprio was obviously interested in like the project and like the message or whatever, but like was not going to commit until they sort of like drilled down and like figured out the character. Like he, he clearly did not want to just be in like a sort of cartoony pastiche movie. Hmm. Um, and McKay also told me that like his editor said like, oh, this is like the trickiest movie I've ever edited with you. The tone is so difficult to nail, like, you know, right. Because it's just sort of swerving from, you know, bleakness to silliness to realism. You know, like it, it is, it's a sort of staggering challenge to try and contain everything and such a big ensemble. And so, you know, so many twists and turns. So, that's where things about it didn't click for me. But then that's where, like you said, Sophie, the last act of the movie actually worked for me really well as it sort of starts to abandon the more cartoony stuff and the kind of media critiques and all that and sort of become more of a character movie set at like, you know, the last days of planet Earth. I love Adam McKay. Like I'm a very fierce defender of his uh, of his comedy stuff and all that. You know, I don't know where his career goes from. He's making a movie about Elizabeth Holmes next. Like, he's staying in the sort of real world critiques. This definitely is just sort of like a very grand, ambitious work that you have to admire the ambition, I think, even if you don't admire the end product. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the arc of his career a bit because he talked about wanting to move on from oafish white guys, like the the products of his earliest films, because they stopped being funny. And I, I don't know. It's that it's they stopped being funny necessarily. I think they're in many ways as funny as they've ever been. But I think it's that he almost made them too lovable. Do you know well, what I mean? Yes, like the dances of right. Anchorman and Talladega Nights, where you're really finding charm in something that the later years <laughs> turned out were actually uh. not so charming. David, I mean, your interview with him, yeah, he says that that felt like a Bush era thing. And now in the Trump era, we've seen just like how awful these characters are and they, and they shouldn't be lovable. And it makes me think of um, people like, for example, Kanye West, who is obsessed with Step, Step Brothers and other Adam McKay. Wait, is films. he really? Oh, yeah. No, oh, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's like always sampled. dropping samples. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like the, the, these movies are are making fun of the kind of grandiosity and silliness that he, that he that he conducts himself with like people like him conduct themselves with and yet he uh, thinks that they're just lovable and hilarious and relatable and so that's you know it's that classic thing that i think michael lewis talked about when he did um he wrote liar's poker and he started hearing from all these stockbroker bros who love the book and just wanted to learn more about how to be like the people described in the book um you know like <laughs> right, this is a, right. this, like, this is a map to success this is great <laughs> <laughs> right it's a good book i mean that is the trick that is the tough tough thing with with satire like you actually create these kind of like metaphors and images that get repurposed by the people you're um trying to take down well, yeah, I mean, one of the only... We, McKay and I, I said, like, I guess Leo's never been in and out now comedy before. And McKay was like, that's basically true, but I would say The Wolf of Wall Street is fully a comedy. And I was like, right, it, it is. Like, and that movie, when it came out, was 
similarly kind of swamped in this critical discourse thing where people are like, well, this movie is a championing an absolute monster. And like, <laughs> it's, it's three hours of him behaving like a pig and, and like swindling people and, you know, being absolutely horrifying. And of course, you know, this sort of like depiction versus endorsement debate reared its ugly head. Because, of course, there are going to be people who watch a movie like that and go like, well, this guy's the best. How do I be like him? But that doesn't mean the movie isn't like trying to lay bare the absolute, you know, uber masculine horror of the world. He's you know, like, it's what's interesting about satirical movie making, right? Like, and that's the thing about A Talladega Nights, which I think is like this brilliant Bush era comedy. You know, obviously, it's making fun of that kind of like swaggering white male mediocrity of the time, you know, and he, you know, Will Ferrell's character is an absolute doofus, but also you do kind of love him, right? You do kind of, you know, want him to win. You want him to beat the mean French guy. You want you want him to get the girl like, you know, they're, they're, it's it's a movie. You're going to you're going to come on to that kind of narrative. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes me think about Don't Look Up. And, you know, maybe that is the change that he made for this movie that's making it kind of land strangely. I mean, do you love any of these characters? Does anyone want to be Jonah Hill or Leo DiCaprio or anyone this week? No, like everyone is kind of just sad. Yeah, that's an interesting point. There's not a ton of heart in it really in, until the end. Right. Although I did truly love Kate Blanchett's character. She's just such a brilliant pastiche of the kind of person who acts dumb on TV when they're actually ferociously smart and they're so ferociously smart that they know how far <laughs> Playing dumb can get them. Well, the handsome astronomer can come back anytime, but the yelling lady, mm. not so much. Not so much. Not so much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Is there any other filmmaker who could assemble this kind of cast now? I mean, it's just stacked. Like Meryl Streep, Kate Blanchett, Jennifer Lawrence, Leonardo DiCaprio, and then Mark Rylance. <laughs> that actually was, the, strangely enough, it is the Mark Rylance performance that did not work for me. He's doing his sort of Ready Player One kind of like guy who seems to have one foot in another dimension, sort of, you know, <laughs> like airy, you know, kind of voice. I mean, it's it's of a piece with the other caricatures in this movie, which is just in, generally in the direction of making people seem flaky and absent rather than like actively malevolent. But I did think one of the funniest parts of this movie was when Rylance is giving his presentation about new technology and he has children up there as props. One of the children asks if they can speak and he just very matter of factly says, no. <laughs> <laughs> as we all should. May I say something, Mr. Ishmael? No. I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think worked best in the film? I think for me, it was Meryl Streep's character, Jonah Hill, playing her son, who I think said yeah. he based his character on the question, what if Firefest was a person and what if that person had power inside the White House? 
<laughs> sort of right Kushner on steroid type yeah, character but dumber yeah. and so much trollier what, yeah what worked best for you guys I mean I absolutely agree that the presidential duo of Meryl and, and Jonah they are the funniest thing and also the sharpest critique just starting with the gag of the president making the scientists who know about the end of the world wait for a full day uh, <laughs> like in the lobby outside the Oval Office like and then when they meet her, she's not a full idiot. She's just kind of distracted and looking for a way to not turn this into a huge issue. But then there's that moment that I love where Leo is sort of having a meltdown. You do understand that this is an apocalyptic event. This is, this is a large celestial body heading towards our planet at, at, at speeds that even... I hear you. Then at that point, President Orlean realizes that she has to change the political tools she's using. And she like looks him straight in the eye and she says, oh, we're taking this very seriously. Don't worry. And it's just like, she knows because she is that good of a sociopathic manipulator, like how to kind of diffuse that situation in the room, but doesn't go on to do anything about it. See, I don't love Meryl and Jonah. That, that, that's, mm. I'm, sort of, I'm not with you guys. I, I could not drill down to what Meryl was doing. I didn't really get what the satire was. I mean, Jonah, I understood what the satire was. That was, that was obvious. <laughs> He's fine. He's sort of doing what's asked of him. But like, those were the scenes where I actually kind of was zoning out the most, I will admit. Do we want to talk about Ariana Grande, Spencer? Oh, Ariana Grande is one of the better parts of the movie. Less when she's like speaking and, <laughs> uh, you know, failing to really convey too much as an actor. <laughs> and less when, uh, you know, I, I, I hate, the name of her character, Riley Bina, it just, it's its not like a mellifluous pop star name at all to me. But one of the best scenes is the benefit concert that happens kind of at the midpoint of the movie to, you know, to tell everyone to look up and listen to scientists. And it's just a perfect replication of the sort of benefit concert pop star vibes that you get where Ariana Grande, is, she looks stunning. She has like these beautiful sculptural pigtails and she's wearing this dress that kind of makes her look like a snowflake. And, you know, her song so sounds a lot like uh, Whitney Houston, The Greatest Love of All. It's just this like, kind of like soaring, treacly thing. And there's like this hilarious disconnect in the idea that like this performance is going to do anything to stop a comet from hitting the earth. Like, And she's singing to this arena full of people holding up their lighters like, wake up, we're all going to die. And it's just, it's, it's just, that's exactly how it would go. Like there, we would have a concert like that. Ariana Grande would probably be there. She would probably look as good as she does there. She would sing as well as she does there. And uh, it wouldn't mean a damn thing. You guys discovered a comet? That's so dope. I have a tattoo of a shooting star on my back. I did love Ron Perlman shooting at the comet. Because <sighs> you know there would 7,000% be Americans who did that. Right. I was about to say Ron Perlman, I thought, like, seemed like a character that they wanted to have in the movie more and something about it wasn't working. So they cut like like it seemed like there was potential there, but he was just a a, a big, dumb military dude. Right. Like that <laughs> <laughs> who, who does, I guess, start calling out various like lightly racist and bigoted things as he's piloting the rocket. That was that was a funny gag. And a big hello to that beautiful blue ball down there we all call home. All those proud white folks working hard. Yeah, let's be real. He'd really be president in our reality. Sorry, Meryl. Yeah, absolutely. I do kind of connect to Leo's character, not as like someone I'm like, oh, I'm like this guy, you know, but I, I just found the arc of him 
being celebrityified, you know, like be this mm-hmm. sort of like introverted scientist type who's just trying to get a message across and then like who becomes a sort of Fauci-esque matter of debate in the middle of the movie where people are like, oh, he's so dreamy or, oh, he's a liar. You know, like the weird way that our culture can only process people as celebrities now. Yeah. Even when they are not striving particularly to be celeb. You know, like I, I found that to be one of the most effective bits of sort of commentary in this movie. I think I, I personally think a lot of what works about this movie works because of him. I think he is giving an extremely committed performance that would not like this movie would sort of like not have a center without him. Like I found some of the media stuff a little broad. Like I don't think there's any show like any morning show, like the one in this that would have such an absolute cultural lodestone quality but like you know but there were things like that that i felt were but also morning television is a strange thing to point a finger at when all of basically right-wing media and the internet's minefield of disinformation exists do you know what i mean like it's weird that with all that at your disposal you're like but hoda you know (laughs) not to single out hoda she she does god's work she does. I mean, it, to, yeah, to me, the media stuff felt the most dated and predictable. But I, then again, as a member of the media, it's just, I, I hear myself sounding very predictable when I complain about the portrayal of the media. Like, like, no movie makes me happy when you have a journalist being like, oh, well, I don't want the story to be clickbait, so I'm not going to use the word engorged or whatever. Um, Jennifer Lawrence's journalist boyfriend says towards the beginning of the movie, like, like things like that are just to me feel like a filmmaker who is annoyed at bad reviews he's gotten before. But I guess it fits with the public perception of how the media is. I think the dissonance with the media stuff too also like speaks to the way that the comet doesn't work as a metaphor for climate change. You know, media loves negativity, loves the apocalypse. Like if there's a big asteroid heading towards Earth. There's no way that it's not like bleeds leads kind of front page news immediately, totally histrionic, totally unhelpful probably, but it's just not the way that climate change works. It's not something that's going to affect us in a world destroying way in the next six months, though, you know, the movement has admirably tried to create like this sort of sense of deadlines and metrics that we are going to tip over and then we'll be past a certain point of no return. Like, and that's been a somewhat ex- effective strategy, but that's not the same thing as an <laughs> asteroid. And so it just doesn't ring true that they, that um, this news would be ignored. It's a little bit more like COVID to me. Um, what did Adam say about the COVID stuff with regards to this movie? That was what interested me most in talking to him. I was like, you wrote this movie as one sort of specific metaphor. And then as you're getting ready to make it, you have to shut down because of another sort of apocalyptic moment in culture that then ends up kind of proving so much of your critique unintentionally right like you know that is sort of what's wild about this film and he agreed that that it was a crazy sort of circumstance and as he was in lockdown you know like everyone else he sort of went back to the script and had to intensify some of the satire like had to make the wackiness quotient of don't look up even higher to sort of eclipse moments like you know trump floating you know injecting bleach on national tv or what you know like things like that where he was like this is too ludicrous and yet it's played out so like i need to try and match the absurdity of that like something like that which would that was all very interesting to me like but it also does reflect what's difficult about satire right now where it's like how do you how do you find ludicrousness 
in our ludicrous reality, right? Or like, I, I don't know how else to put it. Does that make sense? Like, how do you, how do you heighten and amuse when everything is already so feels so heightened all the time? The idea that sort of Trump defied satire because he was bigger than it could ever manage to be in its leaps of wildest imagination. I also think it's really hard to satirize things when you're in the middle of them. I think often you need distance. And the climate crisis is a tricky one for that because we're going to be in the middle of it now until we all die. (laughs) So there's Mm. there's no like nice relaxed alpha phase to kind of really digest this in the sense that maybe there will with a Trump presidency in a decade or so or, or something like that. But it just seems tricky in this moment for entertainment to tackle these really big issues you know the difficulty of the iraq war movie that was something that was sort of much discussed in the 2000s right it's like we're in iraq this is such a big news topic obviously it's 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 like a major thing that's happening to america why can't we make movies that resonate about it right like you know there were so many movies that flopped that were about the iraq war Mm. and about like modern warfare in general and like eventually something like the Hurt Locker that that finally even though that wasn't like a huge huge hit but that won an Oscar and it was you know it was a big memorable movie yeah um, but like the struggle with the Iraq War depicting the Iraq War in art is the same as the struggle with climate change where it's like it's a very very futile endeavor like it's very very difficult to turn that into something entertaining because almost every Iraq war movie was sort of just about like, we're stuck. We don't know what we're doing. The enemy is oblique. Like the, hmm. the purpose is sort of vague. You know, we it was just impossible to put a heroic narrative onto it. And obviously that's something like Vietnam war movies had trouble with too. Like the Vietnam movie sort of became more of a thing post Vietnam, like after we were out of the war and there was more reflection. And like, so that's sort of something that's happening with the Iraq war movie, probably that may, I, it's just going to be hard to do that with climate change because it's, again, it's like, you can't just make a simple movie about scientists saving the world. Like it's not going to reflect the reality. Well, I think this quest for like movies that try to deliver the message or the argument that will really shift the discourse and change people's minds is maybe quixotic or, or, or futile. It's not, there's not like a ton of movies or works of any kind in history right. that it's not you what can it's kind of square they point to. But what they do do is is, is um, give you a set of like images and characters and metaphors and cliches that sort of become, like when they work, they become absorbed into our language and they help us kind of talk about the world in ways that are hopefully progressing our discourse and society away from the bad stuff. Um, and, you know, it, it's really tricky. You know, you think about like, I mean, The Matrix, like that's, a movie about trying to wake the public up and it gives you the metaphor of the red pill and the blue pill. And that's a very powerful metaphor that's being used in politics today, but it's not really being used in the way the filmmakers intended. Well, um, yeah, that's that's an old movie, Spencer. I, I know, hate to break I know. it to you. That movie's 23 I mean, years you know, old. You know, okay. I mean, you know what? Veep? Like, we, we love well, Veep. I, and, and I think of Jordan Peele right away like is sort of like one of the more interesting metaphorical like guys like both get out and us to me had like a very Mm -hmm. strong metaphor delivered very punchily like you know get out had the sunken place as this sort of like thing you could read a lot of contemporary observation into right like you know uh, how black people are marginalized or forced to you know sublimate parts of themselves things like that and then us 
which I think is still like wildly underrated, is like one of the best pieces of satire, I think, of Hollywood in like recent years about like how you know capitalist society works where there's so much that you just have to ignore like you know because if i can spoil us for a second sorry Mm -hmm. this is an us rant but uh spoilers (laughs) for us if you've not seen us but like the whole point of us is that there's like a subterranean society of duplicates who like work beneath us like you know sort of mirroring our activities and i remember when that movie came out people were like well this is ridiculous this is like there's ever we would know if there were like escalators leading underneath the earth like to another world it's like the whole point of us is that we try to ignore things that horrify us because like we you know it's too staggering to think about like there is you know entire underclasses and entire marginalized societies that we just you know you can't process these things on a day-to-day because you would go crazy sorry anyway so jordan peele that's my answer us yeah good movie but i think you're right that it's just like a wonderful distillation of of how the world works and it is underrated because uh we kind of know how the world works and so like like when a movie works on that level it can only go so far but thinking about like get out i think it made a lot of uh, you know white people check themselves about whether they're they're the character in that movie and so similarly like three times right yeah with, with 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 don't look up i think one of the things that maybe might work about it is you know you can't really satirize Trump. It's true he's 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 kind of beyond parody, but you can call attention to the dynamics of the way that people relate to him and, and the effect he does has on the world around him and on the viewer themselves. And so maybe this isn't going to work. But I liked the moment when Jennifer Lawrence's character goes back to her parents, and her parents say, "You can't come in the house unless you agree not to talk about politics." And not talking about politics means not talking about the the comet, which is like, <laughs> right. Uh, nuts, but it's like, you know, maybe there will be politics, viewers who will unquote. see this movie and hear their own language and, 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 and check themselves. Maybe not. Maybe that won't work. But like, that's kind of maybe the greatest hope for any movie like this is that it makes certain kinds of people who are pretty entrenched in their own belief systems just like take a step back. No politics. None. What are you talking about? Your dad and I are for the jobs the Comet will provide. The divisions in this country are bad enough. We don't want more of that in our house. Yeah, I just wanted to make the case too for Orange is the New Black as a piece of art that functioned really well as a political critique, but it wasn't its primary function. Like it was definitely there to entertain, but at the same time it told you these stories. I mean, it really made the case that the carceral system is flawed beyond repair and I think adapted to the reality of the Trump presidency by the end to really comment on the immigration system at the same time. And it did it while being extremely funny and extremely well-written. I mean, not always perfect as no show is, but I think it did something that, as one of the really earliest Netflix products, it it had a tremendous impact that I don't know that we've all really processed. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. The thing with Don't Look Up and the sort of rare movie of this ilk is like, of course, movies can change minds and, you know, art can have great power in that way. But like, when your movie is so explicitly designed to do that, it's, it's sort of trying to pass a different sort of a test, right? Like, it's more like, can this obvious piece of polemic, like, also function as entertainment, right? Like, that's sort of the difficult challenge. Um, satirizing Trump, not that this movie is specifically trying to set, that's not, like, this movie, I feel like, is more trying to satirize, like, a general cultural mindset, right? Like, mm-hmm. why is it that we are not thinking about this existential crisis that, is around us in every like you know how, how, why is it we're distracting ourselves and like that's to me a very interesting thing to grapple with 
I don't know how you satirize Trump without just sort of getting lost in cartoonishness. And I don't think McKay knows either. I think when he was making comedy in the Bush era, he absolutely understood that sort of American mindset. He absolutely understood how to puncture it and how to make it silly and pathetic and sympathetic. Like, you know, he that that's what's so brilliant about Anchorman and Talladega Nights and Step Brothers. And he wisely, I think, is looking at the current political moment and is like, I don't know how to make that funny. Like, so I will comment it from the side, talking about the climate crisis or the financial crisis. You both have mentioned distraction. And, and I think if there is something that slightly rubs me the wrong way about this movie, it's the way it targets the great masses for being distracted when really like distraction is what we do to survive. No one can live in a state mm. of profound fear, existential anxiety, panic, depression, unhappiness, stress all the time. Like distraction, including by watching Netflix movies, is what <laughs> is what gives us moments of relief, you know, not always, not exclusively, but and obviously it's all right. about balance and we do have to pay attention to the things that matter. But simple distraction by itself is 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 worth defending, I think. I mean that was McKay and I talked about like Look, McKay and I are both invested in the fact that Ben Affleck is dating Jennifer Lopez again. We, you know, we both admitted, we both admitted a certain sort of oh, it's nostalgic and oh, it's sort of funny to think about. You know, like, but like at the same time, McKay is like, but this is a distraction. We can't be thinking about it. He's he was just al- allowing that. Of course, I think about it too. It's not like I am some noble holy warrior who spends every minute, you know, worrying about climate change like I, I i understand that it's easy to glom on to more fun more frivolous things and like so that's why this movie is trying to mix frivolity and the fun of a hollywood blockbuster disaster movie with a message it's it's just about how that goes over i've heard from family member you know friends of family or family friends or what some people being like well that was good and not thinking really about any broader metaphor at all just sort mm. of thinking about it on its own terms and it, obviously then there's the other side of people being like how can you criticize a movie that is so noble-minded in trying to change minds like you know any any film no matter how direct its messages is going to be interpreted different ways once it's out in the world you know it's, it's just going to be in the eye of the beholder all right i think we can land the rocket ship of nukes there but before we go we've talked a lot about adam mckay and so i wanted to ask you both what your favorite mckay movies were and why and i will say that mine is Step Brothers, mostly because every day at least three times a day i say that immortal Catherine hanline which is i hate my life dale <laughs> <laughs> i think what's brilliant about Step Brothers is the challenge of it of like can we have as little plot as possible and still connect emotional dots for an audience right like like the plot of stepbrothers is barely there they're stepbrothers and you're like oh okay and they're like yeah that's that's all we've got we're gonna see how this goes and then there's all these sort of like weird little plots on the margin that are so funny it's you know like dadaist comedy almost Mm -hmm. it's it's stepbrothers is a work of genius i love talladega nights i really think talladega nights is like the definitive piece of bush era comedy like that is a movie I can watch again and again and again. Like the hilarious obtuseness of those characters and the triumphant mediocrity. Like I always love the scene where, you know, the guy brags about like, well, we invented missionary sex, so you're welcome. You know, like that 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 whole <laughs> mindset of like triumphant normality. Like it's 
it's such a funny movie and it is also like a relatively straightforward like sports movie that you can like enjoy you know the sort of like act breaks up you know i anyway tally is my favorite but I, I i love all those mckay comedies so do i have to speak up for anchorman like that's, that's, that's my <laughs> anchorman job, rules. the basic one like you know people it became kind of uncool to like anchorman for a while it was kind of like like that and Borat were like ones that had been overly quoted to death and like associated with a certain kind of fat dude, maybe. Um, but I think we've come back around to just that is a movie that is as far from reality as you could possibly imagine, and yet is absolutely nailing like a kind of media environment, kind of person, kind of obliviousness, kind of relationship, kind of era. And it also changed the way that I think about the city of San Diego forever. So yeah, um, Anchorman is my Adam McKay movie. Definitely. That does it for the show. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. And we'd like to welcome the new executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts, Claudine Abade. Our art is by Charlie Le Mignon. I'm Sophie Gilbert. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks, Sophie. Thank you, David. Thank you, Sophie. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye.